Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Atlas Loom, an exploration of world building for tabletop and beyond. My name is Diana Fay, also known as Diana of the Rose, and joining me today, as always, is a TikToker, a streamer, a TTRPG enthusiast, and an active member of the Witness Protection Program. How's it going, Endeavorance? I, I, the main thing that I'm trying to avoid here, and it's hard, it's hard to span the gap of having people actively hunt you and being a passionate very fleshy content creator. Uh, so if you could all do me a favor as we're as we're leaning into this podcast and just not tell anyone I'm here, I would really appreciate it. Other than that, it's going pretty good. How are you, Diana? Pretty solid. Um, everyone, welcome to our first ever episode where we are going to be talking about gods, pantheons, how to build them, and most importantly, how to kill them. Most importantly, how to kill them. Yeah, right. I feel like we always jump into D&D &D campaigns and at level zero people will pop in and be like, all right, so how do I kill a god? Like, that's that's all we've ever wanted to do. Welcome to my world. I've created a wonderful selection of gods for you to kill. That's all. <laughs> I mean, D&D is a god-killing simulator. That's what we're here for. We understand that. It's what we want to do. It's the ultimate goal at all times. Even if your character is like a good character, even if your character is like a lawful good cleric, at some point, for some reason, you're going to get the itch. And if you're going to want to kill a god. Just for the clout. <laughs> or maybe your god made you mad. And, yeah. or, maybe, or maybe someone else's god made you mad. And so what we're here to do today is to equip you with everything that you'll need to have some spare gods lying around so that your players <laughs> can kill them without destroying your world. Or maybe they should destroy your world. Who knows? The world's expendable anyway. I will say it is wild how much D&D &D, like specifically, and this is not a D&D &D podcast, by the way, we're here to talk about Blades in the Dark. We're here to talk about other fantasy or non-fantasy settings. Uh, just in general, we're here to help you world build for whatever purposes you might need them for. Um, that being said, D&D &D 5e really makes it really fucking hard to kill gods as written. Like I, it's disappointing when you get in there and you read the rules and you're like, oh, wow, there's no rules for how I kill a god. They just don't want you to do it. Like, if you look at the stat block for gods, quote unquote, um, in Descent into Avernus, you can find the stat block for Tiamat. And if you look at it closely, it's not actually like the god herself. It's just her aspect. And that's like, like, yeah, you can kill her aspect just fine. But where's the where's the fun in that? Yeah, you know? well, you gotta you gotta find the sort of abstract concept of the god and trap them in some kind of relic. And then like, I don't know, more, okay, ideally, so hold on, let me back up here. I come from a, uh, a long history of uh, Destiny 2, and in that game, it is a meme that you kill gods and turn them into weapons. Like, that's a thing that has happened a shocking number of times in that game. Really? Uh, and all I'm trying to say is, if I am going to kill a god, I'm going to find their abstract essence and infuse it into my, like, sword. You know? <laughs> because I'm gonna try to, I'm trying to run around and killing people with a god sword. Oh yeah. My favorite kind of sword. We'll get to that, though. And that is why it's important to have gods in your world, is so that people can kill them and turn it into a weapon. There's a metaphor here. And I'm not sure what it is yet, but like it's it exists. There's a there's a metaphor in everything. And it's just it's our job to tease it out and take all of the wrong lessons from it. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, world building, right? Gods, right? Worlds <laughs> and gods therein. Uh, Diana, mm -hmm. do you want to talk about gods? Right before we started filming, I was telling Endeavorance that I have a 93 page document full of gods that exist in my world. 
the first two or three pages of that document is talking about the relationship of gods to the world, to each other, to world building in general. And that's just pretty typical for people who started like a macro level like me. So for instance, if you think about the fact that your gods created the world, all of a sudden you have to think about like creation lore that goes along with it. Because for for a lot of us, right, that's that's like the seed of it. Um, especially in fantasy settings, like every species that exists is going to have their own stories, their own reasons for existing. You know, if you think about, for instance, uh, the the Skyrim pantheons, and I'm going to reference Skyrim a lot in these games because I don't know if you know this. I I had a phase a little while ago where I went through and researched all of the Elder Scrolls lore for especially their gods and things like that. And kind of like, I don't know why I did it. I guess I was bored. <laughs> I'm and just so- going to go ahead and push my multiple copies of the hardback Skyrim lore books off to the side here now. Damn, the hardcovers. Hardcover. <laughs> that's what it's called. They're not called hardbacks. Hardback does not actually sound like a thing that hardback I want to continue is, uh, saying. Part of our bonus episodes, if you know that I can't. <laughs> but in Skyrim, for instance, there's a bunch of different races and they all have their own reasons for existing that all trace back to the gods creating them in some way, right? So when I created my homebrew world, I made it so that there was specific lore for how that world was made, which gods were impacting it and how those gods is... Gods is? They're God, those gods. gods. Those gods. How, how those uh, deities? Deities. How, yeah. How they kind of implanted aspects of themselves into the worlds and how that grew into the culture that we see today. So really, when you're creating gods, it's not just like, oh, it's an NPC in a different form. It actually has real world impacts and it's part of the life cycle of everything else you're going to do with this world, right? It's also a lot more than just having a enough checkboxes so that your clerics can figure out who they're going to get in line behind. Because like you said, like they're not just an NPC. They're more of an abstract concept that has ongoing and past effects on the world that you're making. And so like they're going to have probably some sort of physical impact on the world, some sort of social impact on the world, some sort of political impact on the world. And as you said earlier, like different species, humanoid or not, are going to have their own concepts of gods and pantheons and so on and so forth. Understanding the relationship between all of those gods and how they have changed all of those different species over time, uh, all of the movements between various churches that have risen to power or never wanted to rise to power or you know you could do like persecution and whatnot but like hey maybe if you're building a custom world you don't need to put like human suffering as directly (laughs) into it but there's a lot that you can do with the dynamics created by those abstract concepts of the gods rather than just oh yeah also by the way like here's some gods uh you know check that box whenever you're ready. Like they, they should be tied to your world, unless you're working on a world in which the gods have all left it. In which case, that's a whole different Ooh, thing. And that is so much fun. Holy shit. Like a the very, gods very are fun. dead campaign. God, mm-hmm. that'd be so cool. I, I Now I want to do a one shot in like an apocalyptic version of my world where like the gods don't exist anymore. It's like, shit, what happens to your clerics now? What happens to your paladins? What do they turn to? Who becomes mm-hmm. the new gods? Is there just absolute chaos i one of my favorite campaigns that i ran for quite some time was specific it was essentially about that uh but in reverse uh, a long time ago a a faction more or less essentially hunted down and imprisoned the gods and they felt that that was important for them to do to bring stability to the world because they didn't want 
the continued effects of what these gods were doing. And so they wanted to be able to thrive without worrying about these gods. So they essentially imprisoned these gods and a thousand years later, now our intrepid heroes need to find and release these gods, whatever danger it may bring uh, for a greater purpose. That's such a cool twist on things. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to bring them back instead of have them leave. Uh, but additionally, they were also like weakened. And so by the end of the campaign and this, I was so excited about this, but by the end of the campaign, uh, the five players essentially took the positions of those five gods that they had been working for the entire time to free. And that was sort of the like, and scene, you know, that's the end. Congratulations. You became the gods. But it was um, a, a really fun way to directly show the gods have an impact that doesn't necessarily mean it's good. And the gods are non or are, are not omnipotent and not in, like invulnerable. Mm -hmm. They they have a weakness. They could be imprisoned and they and the mortals can have a material impact on the immortal. And that definition, like making it clear what what level of like tetheredness to reality your gods are, I think that's a critically important thing to establish and maintain. Because as you were saying, we don't really get to kill gods very often in certain systems as written. And huh. that's not always a fun way to go about it. Sometimes yeah. you want to just stabby stabby. Honestly, killing gods is a healthy release, if anything. Mm. Everyone should do it once in their once in a while. It's like uh, that one psychologist said, you know, if you play it out in fantasy. I, God, I wish I remembered my psychology training from college. Otherwise, I, this would be such a such a deep reference for exactly two audience members. But there's a specific psychologist <laughs> out there who was like, hey, by the way, if you fantasize about like doing horrible things, it's actually a really great release. So you don't do them in real life. Like that's a necessity for modern society to function as it is, which I'm sure is we can make a whole podcast episode on the role of tabletop role playing games and letting off steam so you don't do horrible things in real society. But I fear that if we really were to lean into people exploring their like deepest, darkest fantasies in these tabletop campaigns, we would just end up with like, hey, uh, this player character group established a hunter gatherer society and is now farming <laughs> and doing like subsistence farming. And is healthy. Um, they have a cleric who's providing free healthcare, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're just existing and being happy and not we needing have all more. All politicians play five E. Is what I'm learning. <laughs> Goddamn! <laughs> you can finally live out your biggest fantasy of finding a plot of land and establishing a commune mm -hmm. in D and D. Better than in Minecraft, but oh, not God, not by much. Minecraft. Dude, I don't know. My audience might or might not know this, but Minecraft was my start as a content creator, as a D&D player, all of it. Like the reason I play D&D is because my the friends that I played Minecraft with back when I was 11 invited me into their D&D campaign. And now I'm here. Oh, hell yeah. Shout out to <laughs> Connor and Tristan. If y'all listen, God's sake. Direct line from Direct there to line. here. I thought you were going to say there's people who do D&D campaigns in Minecraft. I mean, sandboxes, you know? Yeah, yeah. 100% viable. So gods. So gods. Speaking of how you can kill them and how they rise and fall, there's a couple ways you can do it. Um, we talked about this briefly or touched on it briefly, but the idea of a god having some sort of nucleus of power, right? Imbuing their power into a weapon after they die is one thing, but making it so that their power is actually scattered between a bunch of different things while they still exist as a god is another. Um, so in my world, Ooh. one of the ways I make it so that you can kill a god is by hunting down all of their artifacts, all of their pieces of power, whether that's 
the god's avatar themselves, the god incarnate, the god's primary weapon, which we'll talk about primary weapons later on. Maybe, maybe these, maybe this god's nucleus of power or one of their horcruxes is their child. Maybe you have to hunt down a god's child and that is a part of the equation to killing this god. You could really fuck around with it as much as you want. Going with the horcrux method or what I call the horcrux method of making it so that your god has their power split into different portions of items or people and making it so that in order to kill them you have to find all those things and gather them into one place first to make your god vulnerable. That's one way to do it. And that's honestly one of my preferred methods. Dev, I don't know how you run gods. I mean, I haven't seen your world building much, so I'm curious to hear how you do it. Well, I, I, wanna, I wanted to first say that I I love the idea of having a god's power in some way instilled within their offspring, especially because one, that brings up demigods and everything you can do with that, uh, which we can talk about it a bit in this episode, but could potentially be its own episode. Yeah. Uh, but two, it also brings up gods having offspring with other gods making gods. Uh, welcome to the Atlas Loom. Uh, let me tell you how baby, how Babby is formed. Yes. When one god loves another god very much. Uh... <laughs> yeah, they, uh, well, in the case of Greek mythology, Babby can form in a lot of different ways. Jesus. Uh, but coming back a little bit. Uh, the idea of having to hunt down and kill a demigod or another, a minor god to get at a major god. And oh my god, we haven't even gotten into talking about tiers of gods. Diana, we have a lot to cover. We, you asked me about world building listen. and how, what I do. <laughs> <laughs> so Deb and I were talking and we were like, damn, what should we make the first the, the first episode of the podcast be? And I was like, why don't we make it about gods? That seems like a good starting point. Turns out it's a really fucking hard starting point to work off of because there's so much info here. We might have to split it into two sections, but if we do, all the more reason to uh, subscribe and be on our mailing subscribe. list. Subscribe. Follow the audio format show. Fucking slam that, that we're delivering. like button. Smite that subscribe button. <laughs> I want you to take the follow button and I want you to bury it <laughs> under a pile of clicks. And then I want you to click on that share button and I want you to I want you to open up MySpace. Oh, my God. And and I want you to list the Atlas Loom as one of your uh, top friends on MySpace. OK, thank you. We're we're, we're professionals. <laughs> this is podcasting. This is how content creators actually public like push their shit. <laughs> Um, I'm sure, what could go wrong referencing MySpace so, in an episode that I, I don't even, dude, I'm 24. I did not exist in the MySpace era. It's fully lost on me. Fair. I, I did exist in the MySpace era. And if I'm being my truest, most honest self, I basically did not participate in MySpace during the MySpace era. That's probably a I was, good thing. I right? was legitimately, this is so dumb. I was legitimately <laughs> a like contrarian about MySpace. And I was like, I don't no. use MySpace because I'm too cool. And I got into Facebook when it was still uh, college invite only. Uh -huh. And my brother got into it and gave me an invite. And so I was on Facebook and I was like, I'm in the cool place. This is the future of, of social networking online. And you know what fucking sucks, Diana? I was right. And now there's a movie about it. <laughs> oh, man. I distinctly remember trying to explain Facebook to my friends. And they're like, that's dumb. Why wouldn't you just use MySpace? And I'm like... <laughs> Listen here. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure those friends are just definitely they think about that every day now. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they do. <laughs> anyway, so gods. gods. Uh, so you asked me how I uh, do world building with gods. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> How do you do the? So I have the Horcrux method, right? How do you make it so players can kill gods? Uh, typically, I have the gods in a separate realm that is like sort of a plane, but mostly just like their bedroom. And <laughs> it's got posters on the wall of like other yeah. gods in lingerie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> it's got it's got uh, uh, oh God, who's the who's the who's the sexy one? Um, Buddy, we're, we're talking about God. D&D. Aphrodite. They've oh. got they've got Aphrodite up on their wall. Um, anyway, you can bust into their bedroom. Typically there is, it's similar, like some sort of super hidden, well-hidden relic or secret or incantation or time lost spell in another language that no one knows. And if you're able to miraculously piece together all of the parts of the puzzle, you figure out how to actually access their domain. And then that lets me make their domain be a pure extension of whatever their whole vibe is. Mm -hmm. In a different world that uh, is different from the one that I mentioned of, you know, the gods being trapped away. And in that world, they just kind of chilled in the world. Like they were physical manifestations in that world, but they were just like incredibly powerful creatures that were the manifestations of gods, mm -hmm. but had vulnerabilities. And I took that to a bit of a, of a, of a next level with a, another world that I was working on that I will be probably using in some, in some future work. Hint, hint, nudge, Ooh. nudge, uh, follow my socials, etc., and also subscribe. Anyway, in that world, there is a creation story that starts with a, it's not, not really a race, but like a generation of beings that predate everything else and like predate the world having any kind of real structure and more or less have always existed. And those creatures are the closest thing to gods in that world. That world does not have an explicit concept of abstract gods, but instead has these creatures that have been around forever. Many of them have already died off and many of them have just not been seen in thousands and thousands of years. And so who knows if they're even still around, but some of them are still very much embedded in life. Like one of them is just like in an area that's otherwise relatively populated and people just understand you don't go there. There is a big bad thing there. No touchy, don't. Uh, and others are might show up and cause havoc because they were relatively evil aligned and they're mad about settlements of people living their life. And so they're like, get off of my land and get they attack you. Get out of my you. backyard. Get out of my, get out, get out of my swamp. <laughs> is what I'm trying to say here. And Shrek has always been a major god in all of my campaigns. Oh, yeah. So you make it so that they have like a defined. So functionally, they're mortal beings. Yes. And are actually defined from any other mortal being except for the fact that they have notoriety. So they still have a lifespan. I tend to not have. They don't tend to have a lifespan. Like they don't tend to have. They have a lifespan if they've been killed. Uh, but they don't have a an age that matters to them. And typically I like to start like a God will be an abstract concept until they're not. I like them to sort of be a general abstract force, force of something. So force of life or death or rebirth or strength, like abstract concepts mm -hmm. that become manifested out of necessity. Uh, so, for example, again, in that first world of freeing the gods. The world was just chaos, and out of that, nothing was sticking. Like, nothing was was actually being built. There wasn't life. There wasn't anything. It was just chaos that wasn't coalescing into anything useful. And so these forces started to bring shape to that chaos and help it begin to manifest and stick. 
But the only way for them to really do that was to be among that chaos and to directly influence it. And so these abstract powers became physical beings that exist in that plane and shape it to their will. Like they still have godlike powers, not omnipotent powers, but the ability to directly influence the world from the perspective of their abstract concept so as to actually make something exist. And so that's how like life was brought forth. That's how desire began to exist. That's how power began to exist. And for better or worse, those concepts are now instilled into the world and can be killed. So like a, a transcendent alpha. Yes. Interesting. For sure. a, a very Chad-like being. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of rolls into our next point, right? Of like, we talked about how gods can die and their their weaknesses, their weak points, and the the journey that your characters would have to go through if they want to kill a god, you know, gathering portions of this god and putting them all in one place to slay them or finding the the key to the god's home plane. Um, but when it I comes also to very like, much enjoy having them hidden away in just deeply inaccessible places. For example, right. one of them I would place at a compound, the bottom of the ocean. Uh -huh. uh, which makes for, you know, once you learn where they are, if you want to get there, have fun figuring that one out. But which that like the place that gods are locationally also impacts how they interact with their their followers. So if you have a god at the bottom of the ocean, how does that impact the clerics that follow that god? Do they feel disconnected? Do they feel like they only receive visions from their god while they're dreaming or while they're standing in specifically that ocean? Like, how does that impact the connection there? There's so many questions that you can really ask yourself when it comes to this sort of stuff. What I was going to talk about, though, was like how how gods are created going off your last point. You know, in your model, you seem to have like a these people came here first and they brought order to this thing. So now they control that thing. What about when a god gets supplanted? Like what happens mm. after? Like like how do that god can't exist forever, right? If they're mortal, if they have a way that they can be killed, what happens after they're killed? How is a new god created in that same sphere? Like how do you have that work out in your world with that model? I mean, my favorite is essentially bestowing, like like passing the crown. I like it when my players are as much as it's fun to kill a god. <laughs> so I know that killing a god is fun, right? But I actually enjoy it more as a DM uh, when my players are able to sort of finesse their way into claiming godship from an existing god. And that can happen in a couple different ways. And I will usually tee that up in a campaign if I want something like that to happen. I've also had scenarios where a god ceases to exist and their power gets spread across multiple people. And so there isn't a direct continued force, but instead they have been uh, spread out. And now we've got people who essentially their lineage is descendant from a god. Yeah. And that lets you do a whole lot of fun stuff. Like if that happened way in the past, now you've got, you know, insert unique group of characters that is plot relevant here, right? You've got some distant connection to a god because of your ancestor killed them and, and whatever. Um, so you don't have to replace it one to one. That said, you also very much can, especially if you are having gods fighting each other and and fighting for transferring power to each other or trying like, you know, we've got one god who's got the god of, I don't know, moldy cheese. Uh -huh. And they much wish that they were the god of not moldy cheese. Oh, and so now they're attacking the god of not moldy cheese. Oh, damn. Trying to steal that power from them. This is a, I'm building a campaign right the here. The drama. <laughs> mm. I feel like that's very similar to what I do, um, where if a god splits their power into other beings, it's possible for those other beings to achieve divinity. Um, and I feel like that, if anything, is original a, sin. Original sin. Sponsor. 
one and two. <laughs> By the way, if you guys haven't fucking played, listen, Deb, keep this in the podcast because I'm so fucking serious about this. If we, okay. <laughs> if people are playing Baldur's Gate 3 right now, right, which you should be because this should be coming out in uh, early December and Baldur's Gate 3 is still relevant, I hope, play Divinity Original Sin 1 and 2. Oh my God. It is such good inspo for fucking D&D and in general. And it's like, it's the same studio, same If you're listening to the podcast and you're not watching the uh, reel of this, if we're able to get the video from this, Diana is currently strangling her owlbear pussy. Listen, he's fine. He's okay. (laughs) He's good. We're good. Everything's fine. Don't call PETA, please. Um, I will say the people who like make this owlbear plush they contacted me and they're like hey do you want a sponsorship and i'm like listen i'll do it for free i love this little <laughs> man this guy's my life right now he's so sweet we call him owlcito oh because the spanish word for bear is osito or little bear is is the spanish word so we call him owlcito. meanwhile i have a plant named tax evasion <laughs> thanks <a> chat <laughs> You got to get a plushie. We got to make a plushie. Got to make a plushie. Merch. Merch. <laughs> Fuck. What was I talking about? I don't know. Gods? You got me onto Divinity Original Sin, and now I'm just thinking about Divinity. Mm. Um, Welcome to the Atlas Loom, a review podcast about Divinity, the, the original sin. Yeah, here's the, original the review. Sin. Wow. It's fucking amazing. Play that game, you guys. Oh, my God. Larian, if you're watching this, sponsor us, please. Sponsor? Yeah. Hey, uh, Larian, uh, what the hell is our business email? I'm pretty sure it's business at the Atlas Loom. Please. Dot com. please I'm Larian. checking it. I'm actively looking it up. Larian, hold on. Stay on the line, Larian. <laughs> Larian hey, Larian, stay you. on the line. All right. Yeah. Business at the Atlas Loom dot com. Larian, now that now, uh, thank you for staying on the line. Uh, email us uh, and also put me in the next Baldur's Gate update as a character thank you (laughs) so one of the ways that i have uh pantheons kind of like have turnover right which sounds like a very corporate way of putting it but it still is a real thing uh it's kind of like what you were talking about where gods can imbue lesser beings with their power but also lesser beings can kind of usurp those gods so i have it in my world and i'm gonna go ahead and put this out here because it is the pilot episode so i want to establish this right away endeavorance is one of my characters in my DD campaign so every time i talk about what i do for my worlds um it's just straight up giving spoilers to dev here <laughs> this this Aha. man now knows all of my secrets thanks to this fucking podcast this was the only reason i wanted to start this podcast god damn get, it get an edge on this campaign <laughs> you have no idea how much time money and energy we have sunk into making this podcast just so i can get the scoop on this campaign <laughs> One of the one of the things that I do in my campaigns is I make it so that the gods' powers are rooted in how many followers they have. It is purely based off of belief, which is another way that you can make it so that the again, the rules could work this way in your world. I have it so that if enough people believe that a god has a certain power or enough people believe this certain being to be a god, it transcends, it achieves apotheosis. Apotheosis, fucking fantastic vocab word, by the way. Very good word. So good. They So for example, if someone starts a cult, right, by itself, a cult, like it would be in the real world, is just some dude at the head of a massive group of people being like, yes, worship me. But if that person does enough things- I should start and- a cult. Uh, dude, do you want to start? Def, do you want to start a cult? Welcome to the Atlas Loom, a podcast about starting a cult. Step by step. I am your almighty savior, Endeavorance, and with me, as always, is your divine conqueror, Diana. Yay! Subscribe. (laughs) Subscribe. That's our our secret handshake, is you subscribe subscribe. to our podcast. What Um, were we talking about? 
so uh, the, the belief way, in gods. Yes, right. So someone could start a cult and they could be like, yes, I have all these powers. And if they demonstrate those abilities well enough, or if they go out and gather enough artifacts that make it so that those abilities are a legit thing, or they gain enough levels in whatever class they happen to be that they can actually do these things. Like, for instance, they perform a divine intervention for someone successfully enough times, then their following grows. And as their following grows, if they start to span the scale of continents, multiple people across different parts of the world believe them to be a god, then that comes to fruition. Like they are a god. So in my world, God's powers are directly proportional to how many people believe in them. And a good way to topple a god is to make it so that you destroy the foundation of their belief. So one of the ways that gods go to war against each other and use their pawns, their followers, in order to do so is to seek out artifacts of each other's fates and destroy them and make it so that you no longer have this fundamental part of your institution it's gone now. I destroyed it. Now what are you going to do? Now your faith is weakened. Now people don't believe in you as much. They believed in the artifact more than they did you. So now you you have that much less power as a god and someone else can step in and fill that void. Similarly to that, if I have gods kind of like impersonating each other, and I, I'm still working this mechanic out, but um, this is a big thing where I believe in normal D&D lore, there was a thing where gods would kind of like pretend to be other gods in order to take over their worshipers. So they would portray themselves as a certain god, but with like a slight twist. So that way they could infiltrate their cults, gain their followers, and then slowly migrate those followers into a new way of thinking, which then just becomes whatever that god's new sphere is. So there's a lot of ways that you can kind of play into the politics of god versus god warfare when it comes to their power being really fundamentally a, a function of their followers. I love that. And I, I want to get a bit of clarification just to make sure I understand. So like you mentioned that a cult leader can essentially become an actual god. Mm -hmm. um, so you're saying that your gods, all of them or some of them, start as mortals? Some of them. So it depends on how old the god is. So in the beginning, right, in my world, it was ruled by primordials, kind of like what you said, where someone came into a world and basically tamed it. They coalesced it into some form of power. Originally, it was the four elements in my world. And so the four primary gods, the first gods to ever exist, were the gods of primordial spirits, fire, earth, air, and water. And from there it kind of split apart into smaller cults of like, oh, okay, we no longer worship just like air and water. And now we worship steam as a concept. And that turns into, you know, like earth and fire, turns into the spark of life, things like that. That's getting a bit abstract, but essentially a cult leader could become a god if they worked at it hard enough. So yeah, essentially in my world, not every god began that way but there is like as i said, kind of like this turnover this this apotheosis that happens where occasionally a god will imbue a saint of theirs um, and saints are really a big part of the the god mechanic and the pantheons in my world where someone does something to earn the favor of a god and then all of a sudden if something happens to that god or they feel like they're in danger and they need to emergency shunt all of their power to some being that they trust that goes to their saint and their saint achieves apotheosis and becomes the next god of whatever that sphere is. Now, that being mm. said, since the god's power comes from their followers and because their power comes from what their followers think that that god is, so it's kind of manifestation in a really abstract form, if that saint has a slightly different take on what that god's power is or if they decide, hey, I actually want to make it so this god isn't like a good god, uh, maybe they're like slightly chaotic, that will become a thing. And that becomes the new form of that god's power and of that pantheon so it's it's very 
up for grabs, I guess. <laughs> I also am a big fan of the, I'm just going to call it the Majora's Mask method. And I know that you're not. Is uh, now, a, are a you outing Nintendo me as girl. not a Nintendo person right here now? I know you're not a Nintendo girly. God I understand, damn. but I am a Nintendo girly. And I will, I will very clearly uh, explain this because it's not particularly difficult. But in Majora's Mask, the, the main concept is just like random sort of like chaotic neutral or even chaotic evil character um, who's like a, a child of the forest but like fucked up looks like a living scarecrow kind of he's oh. like a cursed child of the forest basically and he finds a mask that contains the power of a god basically and uses it to try and destroy the world by dropping the moon onto the planet like summoning the moon to come crash into the planet as you and do. so like that what you just described of like passing the passing the power on to someone and also like who knows what happens next the idea of a god being killed or something just something innocuous happens maybe like maybe maybe there's a museum somewhere with an artifact that has been like collecting dust for so long and no one realized that that artifact contains the power of an old god. And like some intern or, or like <laughs> custodian or something bumps into the case and like frees it or like some kid that shouldn't have been like reaching for it or whatever, like found it and was like, oh, neat, a cool necklace and put it on. And now you're this like eight year old holds the power of a god or is being channeled by said god. That's another thing is you don't have to have your gods die like the god can probably take physical forms that can be killed and the god might be suppressed for a bit or not have the same direct impact on the world that they might have had but just kind of goes back to being the abstract concept again and there's a lot you can do there especially like hampering a um an entire like religion based around that god like you know if you if you know that there are like clerics that you're trying to remove some of their power or they've got too much power because their god has come down to the world and is just radiating the energy that they are that they are consuming to do their magic and it's like you can just end that by getting <laughs> them out of here fun stuff killing gods killing gods is so much fun holy shit um so we've talked a lot about how they can be what they can do well how they've impacted the world i do want to talk about what they can do in in modern world times while doing a campaign and I also want to talk about how we can make them. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like make them is a big one. So let's start with what they can <laughs> do. Because existing and providing access to magic is a lot, but gods can also just do shit. Sometimes gods get bored or make a deal or decide that, you know, today is a good day to rain some hellfire or today is a good day to remind the world of my power. I am a big fan of a cult that's that like forks off of otherwise a god's normal following that gets a little too wacky and wild with it uh -huh. and then the god makes a demonstration of retribution out of them i have used that a little too many times to set up a bbeg just because it's like oh like i try i i dared to go against this god and i was scorned by them my following was destroyed and so now it's like my whole goal is to find a god that will help me unseat the one that that betrayed me and so on and so forth what do you what do you do when you're approaching ongoing impacts, if any, from the gods that exist? 
especially I'm interested in as as these people in your world are rising to power by way of, of belief. Do the gods tend to interfere at all? Oh, yeah. Um, it depends. So in, in my world, the gods can be as specific or as general as they want. And in general, depending on the personality of the person who achieved apotheosis, they tend to want more power. Right. And that's kind of how the real world works. Someone gains a taste of power and they want more of it. That's the reason that gods do what they do in my world. And so if they see that there's a rival cult or a rival deity that has roughly the same sphere, their main goal is to try and encompass that sphere and take it over and gain those followers and become even more powerful in whatever their chosen, you know, idea or pantheon or no. Or portfolio is. Um, you ever play that that fucking my godly was, portfolio? That my godly portfolio followed shortly after by my godly resume and my godly business card. Uh, my godly CV, godly yeah. CV. <laughs> my godly curriculum vibe. Is it Vitey or Vite? Yeah, do we know? Can we? Can somebody pull that up? Can somebody else in the studio? So we've got a lot of staff here. So many. Can somebody else in the studio uh, pull up? What a CV actually is. What that actually means. Because I'm not sure we actually know that. So if we can get um, Gerard, get on it, Gerard, please, Gerard. All right. Gerard's typing currently. Gerard's working um, on it. I am not Gerard for sure. Mm -mm. Uh, Gerard, Gerard has looked up a curriculum vitae is an exhaustive listing of all of the significant achievements in your career. It's literally just an exhaustive resume. Cool. So we've talked a lot about gods on like the grand sense of their relationship to the world and to each other and how they rise and fall. But when it comes to actually like building a god. It, it, I feel like it can be broken down into a couple different like step by step things or a checklist of like, here's the bare minimum you need to build a god. I mean, Dev, do you, any, do you have any like methods for that? I recommend starting by like, look up a picture of me and <laughs> use that as your reference for sort of just like a perfect specimen, just sort of like just what the Abrahamic god, god the god. Yeah. You only need one. Um, yeah. Because, like, I, you can make one god that just kind of, like, you know, has the vibe of me. And that's that's more or less what it, I did literally do a self-insert god character once. But did that you was, really? It was, no. it was, I was getting a little too um, meta with the, with the campaign. And the final boss was versus the god that was creating the storyline that they uh -huh. were playing through. And so the final boss was them versus me, basically. <laughs> How did you... I got a little wacky and wild with that one. Wait, what system was this in? D and D. What What were your stats? Uh, it was It was a bit more abstract than that, but okay. yeah, I don't remember wild. the exact stats off the top of my head. But it was like a whole. There was just a bunch of. It was much more of a mechanical fight. Mm. Of I can't get into that scene. Was ridiculous. I can't quite get into it, but it did involve <laughs> jumping through multiple worlds that were being actively forged by the god while they were attacking all of his downstream creations and like powering themselves up to be able to fight and kill the god that is building the timeline that they are existing in. It was a wacky campaign. Jesus. Um, anyway, if you, time, if you ever wanted a better advertisement for D&D, &D, you could just self-insert yourself as god, I guess. Yep. Um, so for making normal gods, though, that are not literal self-inserts <laughs> that are that are built explicitly to break the fourth wall and so on and so forth, um, I mean, to be fair, okay, real quick tangent, to be fair, it wasn't totally hubris that did that for me. I was, it was because, uh, my, my brother was playing in that campaign. Oh, in that case you have to. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> well, it's cause he wanted to fuck with me 
by playing a cleric who worshipped a god whose name was just a brutalized version of the pronunciation of my real name in real life. Uh-huh. And his ongoing joke was that his god was me. And so I worked that into the campaign. Did he know it was coming? No. Really? Oh, that's so good. <laughs> so when I want to get started working on uh, on a set of gods, and if I want to just like get moving from zero, I will start by taking the the standard morality alignment chart. And, you know, you got nine slots there to start with. That gives you a decent bit of spectrum here for gods that are trying to be constructive and gods that are trying to be destructive or coagulate power or anything like that. And so it, it forces you to say like, okay, from the drop, assuming that your world, that the point of your world is that there is some form of balance and absolutely you should have fun with making some worlds where like the gods are just actively hostile or the gods are abandoned the world as we were discussed earlier. But if you're trying to just make a balanced sort of general purpose, I want to run a handful of campaigns in the same world over and over with a lot of options available. Having that variety in your first few gods lets you start thinking through like, okay, where are these impacts going to land both physically and politically in the world? What sort of lesser gods do I want? Like you could really start with a pantheon of exactly nine greater gods that span the nine different alignment positions. Like if you want the bare minimum to get started with your own world, you've got your nine major gods. And then from there, it's like, okay, work with your players and figure out what additional gods you might need or work with your own dang self and look at what subcultures you've, you've come up with in your world and figure out what lesser gods might they want to have. And maybe those can roll up into the, the major gods, or maybe they are just also major gods. But when I get started, I try to give myself essentially a set of boxes to fill. And that just gives me the prompts to start saying, I don't even have to come up with what do they look like? What's their name even? But what do they stand for? And what do they bring to this world? And then eventually figure out names, depiction, like that stuff feels important. It's really not. And will almost never come up in actuality. Uh, unless, of course, you are presenting the god in their normal standard form to the players. And that almost never happens. Because again, you can just have conduits and saints or representatives of, of the god or just a, a talking relic, you know? It's very rare <laughs> the actual god will be like, hi, it's me in my physical form with my real name. Also, that's another thing. You don't even really need to name your gods because you can just give them like titles or a thousand different names and have everyone call them something different uh, because it's like, you know, they're a concept. They're not a named entity necessarily. So you come at it from like the nine major gods and then it branches out from there sort of way. Mm -hmm. The trickle down economics of gods. The trickle down ecogotics that I do of starting with the the nine main gods and then trickling down into the smaller gods. But I will I will go beyond nine like nine is not even or much less than nine like I'll do just like five sometimes Um, because like a chaotic evil god is not really sustainable. Because if they are actually a god and they have pow- the powers of a god, a cha- chaotic evil god will just Thanos snap every day. And that's that's not going to keep your world moving. <laughs> so typically I would stop. I would not really fill that one out. Or if I would, they, they don't exist anymore or have been somehow uh, rendered useless by the other gods. And that maybe gives you a plot point of like, there's this evil power that's being kept at bay. But yeah, typically you're going to build your neutrals, your goods and your lawfuls before you're going to be building chaotics and 
evils. I come at it from a totally different direction. I would love to hear. I and I, I made a video about this a long time ago. I don't know if it's still relevant because relevance is abstract and content creation is a constant threat. But what I do when I create deities and pantheons is I kind of set it aside, not by morality, but instead by concept. So kind of like I touched on before, I start with a just like a list of I like concepts that I want to fill. So for instance, the four elements are a good one. Air, water, fire, and earth. I start with those and I just put them on a, a dock somewhere, some Google Doc or a notepad. And then I continue in and I say, okay, well, I also want a god of good and a god of evil. Once I have those, I'm like, okay, well, shit, like I need to get a little bit more refined. You know, I, I say, oh, I want a god of not just good, but maybe like luck. And then I take that god and I'm like, okay, well, I want a god of good luck and a god of bad luck. And kind of branch off from there, basically just taking a bunch of major concepts and deifying them, you know? Uh, so I have a god of hunting and then a god of preservation of life. I have a god of civilization and a god of wild nature. Um, as opposed to the god of wild nature, there's a god of cultivated nature. So, you know, Sylvanas in D&D would be the god of wild nature. And then Shantae would be the god of cultivated, humanized, maintained nature. And a lot of that is like a bunch of pairs, diametrically opposed pairs. So good and bad, you know, life and death, a god of law, a god of chaos, a god of protection, a god of torture, things like that. And so you can kind of just take those concepts, write them down. And then if I'm going at it the really lazy way, I will just like Google a bunch of gods in the specific system I'm working in and then choose whichever one I like the best. So for D&D, I will Google D&D, God of Death or whatever, and then just take the one that I feel like sounds the coolest and make that my god. But when it comes to like actually building them out, there are a couple things that I try and put down on paper. So, you know, their name, for instance, I know you said that you don't really like need a name. You can have like titles and things like that. Oh, I mean, for the very beginning of creating your world. Oh, so like, like, like a grand concept. Yeah, I don't mean that they don't need to be named ever. I'm just saying to not to not bog yourself down with the details when you're start staring at a blank page. Naming your god is not the uh, first yeah. thing that you should be focusing on. I also do want to say that it sounds like we are approaching a similar method from different starting points. It sounds like you are starting from a place of concepts while and then and then deriving all your gods from there. I am starting from a place of intention, like what like I, I start with big buckets that those concepts would fall into and then and roll everything up into that and then begin to break those out as needed as sort of relationary to relationary relating like relationary to, is a word. I'm going to go with relationary. Relationary yeah, I'm going to break good. things out relationarily mm -hmm. to those to those big boy gods. And so it sounds like we're kind of doing a similar approach. And it, it's just a yeah. matter of like, if, if I can, I'm just trying to distill down the recommendation here, you know, because it seems like however you can conceptualize force, power, and I guess just existence, like, like fractures of existence. Welcome to our new podcast, Fractures of Existence, because it's a way better Damn, name. Damn, that's a way cooler name. It's really Fuck, fucking we should have done that. We've already paid for the branding. Uh, all right. Well, anyway, uh, so when you're thinking of all the different fractures of existence, God, that's <laughs> rad as hell. Oh, my God. Okay, sorry. Uh, uh, I'm it's claiming it's a that lot of title. Syllables. I mean, yeah, but also consider the following. It shortens to foe. Ah, uh, damn it. Yeah, we fucked up. We, we, fucked, we up. fucked up anyway, hard, you guys. This is the last episode of the Atlas Loom. Please check out our new podcast, Fractures of Existence. Moving on.
uh, <laughs> it's a matter of how do you conceptualize those things at a grand scale. And it sounds like for you, it, you're, it's easier to conceptualize starting with the big concepts. But for me, it's easier, easier to conceptualize starting with the categories of concepts because I have a much harder time starting with what matters here first rather than what is the vibes of this space. Um, and I don't think that there's a correct way to go about it. I think I think it really depends on the world builder. Sorry, the world weaver, world weaver. Uh, as to how they want to go about Subscribe. approaching this incredibly daunting task, inventing gods. Honestly, when it comes to alignment too, like that eventually comes into play. Like down the road, after you've come up with all the names and the, the domains that the gods inhabit, if you think about the fact that like you have a god of the hunt, right? If you go at it from the chaotic good side of it, you know, that god of the hunt will promote values of people, hunters, followers who kill a creature, but then offer a prayer over that creature's dead body and then preserve the general population of that creature so it can replenish and then go back into a healthy enough population state that it can continue to sustain whatever nearby villages exist or nearby followers exist until the end of time. Like they have ideals of promoting the general common good even if you're killing something in the meantime right but if you think of like a chaotic evil or a neutral evil god of the hunt you think about nature as something to be subjugated instead and so you can kind of still take your idea of alignment and apply that to whatever god exists or multiple gods that exist so for instance if you have which is often the case in fantasy worlds multiple pantheons and multiple iterations of gods that inhabit the same sphere you can differentiate them by how they approach their own following and their own relationship to whatever it is that they have dominion over that's super rad and like i like the idea of the ability to start with the concept and then determine the moral approach of that concept yeah. and how you talked about having diametrically opposed versions of sort of each concepts representative i like the idea a lot of overlapping gods that only really differ in intention rather than concept yeah and that could be a whole plot point. It's like, how do clerics of an evil god of the hunt confront a, you know, a sect of clerics of chaotic good gods of the hunt? Like, how will they interact? That's basically an entire story arc written out for you right then and there. There's also the, uh, we haven't quite touched on, we've touched a lot on, on gods of blah, but we haven't quite touched on gods of multiple things because like i mean if we're talking about like major gods they're just like you know everything just lumps into them right but like there are gods of x y and z and x y and z do not need to be related at all as <laughs> we've seen that from actual earth lore <laughs> that you can have a god of like fresh cut grass salmonella and flowing rivers or mm. something and it's like my oh favorite. yeah my favorite <laughs> uh <laughs> And like you can, you can do that. And also, again, with that framework that you mentioned, the idea of a god of multiple things, but like one of those things is just another god's domain, but done, quote unquote, wrong, <laughs> uh, would be really funny, actually, of like a god that's just like wandering into a different category. And it's just like, oh, well, you know, this is how I approach my other stuff. So I'll just do the same thing here. Mm -hmm. Barrel forward. Barrel forward. So moving past the the initial creation of these gods, though, right? Because like it's it's. It's one thing to have a bunch of bullet points that say, I'm going to have a god of these things. And here are they, here they all are. Um, I mentioned that you don't really need to come up with their, with their appearance or name at first, but you eventually will want to have a name or at least several ways to reference them. 
maybe a description of their vibes. If not a physical description, you might want to have like what senses are associated with this god. What would a, what would a cleric feel when leveraging this god's power? and so on and so forth. But you do want to eventually move on into what impact do they have on this world? What's their following size? At, at you know, time of present, quote unquote, like if we're assuming that, that we are designing the world such that it's at a certain state, skipping forward from creation to now, what does their following look like? What do, are, do they have an organized religion around them or are they more of an abstract cult from the shadows? Do they have any followers at all or are they a forgotten god? Do they uh, appeal to humanoids or maybe they're instead a, I don't know, fox god and all the foxes in your world have a god that they all love. That's god, kind of that'd adorable. be so cute. I want a fox god. That'd be so fucking cute. Holy hell. Diana, my question to you is where do you go from the very beginning with your gods? You've, you've established like, here's what we have. Here are these forces. I'm curious how you then begin to quite literally weave them into the world in some sort of actual way. I think the god's relationship with its followers is something that you absolutely bare minimum have to have, um, especially because some of your players might be those followers. And so generally, I try and set out a couple things that are common to people who follow that god, common to the religion. You know, it could be colors that they wear. It could be a certain type of cl like clothing that they wear, like a cloth or a mantle or a holy symbol or a holy weapon, something like that. Greetings that they have. Like in paganism, people often greet each other with blessed be or say goodbye, that sort of term. Um, maybe a hand gesture that they have. Something that they can use to identify each other with is a really good idea to have. A name for the devotees is really good. So something like a prefix or a title. So maybe followers of Lathander call themselves light bringers in your world, or someone who has like a grand prophesizing role in the church calls themselves the Oracle of the Stars or whatever, if they happen to relate to a god that has to do with the stars and horizons and cosmology in that sort of sense. Um, and then I don't want to. I don't want to interrupt, but I have to. I'm so sorry. It's just oh yeah. The, when you when you said maybe followers of Lethander call themselves, immediately my brain went to Lethheads, <laughs> and I got so excited that you were gonna like. I knew that like, you said something that actually was like meaningful and sensible. I was God like, damn oh it. yeah, me and Leth. I love me some Lethander. I'm a Lethhead. <laughs> we're we're all Lethheads around here. Oh, anyway, man, I'm a huge subscribe and become a Lethhead today. Sorry to interrupt. I just, I had to get that one out there. <laughs> anyway, Wizards of the Coast, if you're listening, um, we've got some suggestions for you. <laughs> we have some, I, I can, give me, give me edit access to the Google Doc of uh, 5e. I'll make it better, trust me. So once you have like certain levels of devotees involved in your in your church, you also want to think about what their ultimate power looks like. Like what is, what what are people of this faith really good at? What does their ultimate form look like? What gets them that power? Um, what 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 do they wear that what, what basically what makes them different from everyone else in the church? You want to make sure you have that hammered down. And then while you're thinking about the church, think about what rules that everyone in that church follows. Like what is taboo in that faith? So, for instance, for a god of death, if their main faith is about ferrying souls to the afterlife and treating death as a sacred right, do they consider undeath to be an abomination or do they consider undeath mm. to be the mastery of death itself? Like, do they have a Ooh. positive relationship towards that or negative? So think about what might be taboo in your guys's religion. I love the idea of 
a faction in like infighting over that exact concept actually yeah right it'd be fucking cool i don't have that in my world yet but i want one because i feel like a lot of people build gods of death and they're like oh yeah this god hates undeath like it's it's horrible it's an abomination in my faith but it's like well what if they really like death they 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 want more of it you also want to think about the church's goals um just like in our next episode when we talk about npcs pretty much everything in your world should have a goal of some sort so even organizations should have these goals for your church it will be you know, either maybe to subjugate power or discover lost artifacts of the faith? Will it be to help the needy? Will it be to fight another god? What does your church want to accomplish? And in the meantime, what do clerics of that faith do to help further that goal on a smaller scale? The other things I like to think about is what does the church physically look like? Like, does it have symbols of the faith literally everywhere when you walk into a building devoted to this god? Or is it kind of low-key? And what are those symbols? And what are those symbols? In general, you're God should have some sort of symbol. Uh, and that should be probably the last thing that you build for that God. Uh, because once you have like the grand concept of what they control, that will help kind of like guide you towards what their symbol will look like. But are those everywhere? So for instance, a God of the Horizons, does it actually have a church at all? Or is it more like their followers just kind of wander the earth and continue being trailblazers for the rest of the civilization that they're a part of? Sunsets could be a holy moment for them. Hey, yo. Yeah. Oh, my God. Fucking Cult love. Cult of the sunset. Good sunsets, man. Holy shit. Like, on that note, like, are their churches, if they exist, built on cliff sides where they have easy access to the sun? Or is your god a god of darkness mm. where they refuse to see the sunset or any relation to the sun at all? Are they underground? Are they on cliff sides? Are they underwater? Are they in tree houses? Things like that are really cool to think about because it provides easy flavor for anyone who comes across those churches while they're actually playing your game. And then... The last thing you should think about is like, what about non-devotees? What do the general public think of your god? Do they think that they are taboo? Like if you have a god of death, do they worship that god of death in hopes that when people die, they are treated better by that god? Or do they absolutely revile the god of death? And do they pray that the god of death doesn't look upon them and their family members in hopes that they'll live longer as a, as a result? Like one of my favorite gods in D&D is Umberly. Like Umberly herself, she's an evil god, right? So clerics of Umberly will use their power for evil Means. And so they will have it so that non clerics of Umberly, people who are just on ships sailing the oceans that she controls, need to pay tithes to the clerics and to the altars in order to have safe passage. So their worship is based out of fear. So thinking about that sort of thing is really fun as well. And that kind of builds a dynamic world with dynamic gods and dynamic relationships to those gods. I think that's incredibly important. I think it's incredibly important for the gods to feel like they actually have meaning and impact, especially in day-to-day -day and moment-to-moment -moment life. Meeting an NPC and not understanding why they're doing what they're doing, but they, you know, they deeply care about some artifact or they're doing some ritual that's just like a part of who they are. That adds such a good and very specific level of flavor that shows to your players that there is more to this world than just the mere existence of gods and the mere existence of people who are aligned to specific gods. It's not just, you know, cells on a spreadsheet. It's a character that has this relationship. They're, the foundation of their life is based on their relationship with this god and the expressions of that god. And the culture that surrounds them has been impacted by the way that these gods have impacted the world and how things have just played out over time. And so your players are able to see like, wow, okay, this is meaningful. And what they do with that information, who knows, maybe they're evil and they know now that's a thing I could steal that would really mess this place up. 
or maybe they're good and there's they're gonna say oh i i now feel a compulsion to protect this place because it's obviously a holy site giving them that level of flavor shows the actual integration of the gods into your world and just feels to me like one of those things that just kind of wraps everything up in a nice bow it's it, it helps to string together just so many disparate details that add enough color to the world to make it feel just a little bit realer. Right. And making the world feel real is our entire goal here at the Atlas Loom. <laughs> um, we we could go on about gods. We like literally looking at this episode draft that I have for this. It's so <laughs> it's long. so fucking long. Like I have 93 pages of gods that I could talk about and like four or five pages of just bullet points for those gods. But that being said, we do have to wrap up. Yeah, it is probably for the best that we save some of this. Well, most of this, really, for another episode. And we'll touch right back on this. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoyed episode one of The Atlas Loom, an exploration of world building for tabletop and beyond. We are on a mission to help you make the best possible worlds for the best possible time telling incredible collaborative fiction stories with you and your friends. Tune into future episodes for endless discussions about just so, so many things around world building. And if you would like to ask us a specific question, you can always email us at wish at the If you would like to join our community, you can actually just head to the and sign up right there. We will have resources future episodes, bonus content, all sorts of stuff there for you. And if you want to be our absolute favorite, you can sign up for a premium subscription. We are going to have bonus behind the scenes content just for you and only for the paying subscribers. Everyone gets the show, but but for the most dedicated among you, you get an inside look at Diana's brain. Mine specifically. We're do an MRI. Oh man. C a CT scan? Which one's which one's All the, of them. the brain? A, an MRI, a CT scan, a biopsy. If we can get my blood work done, I can post that. Yeah. Um, Y'all want my social? I can get my social up. Anything for the content. Seems like good premium. If you want Diana's social security number, <laughs> be sure to head to theatlasloom.com and sign up. We would really, really appreciate it. With all of that said, thank you so much for listening. My name is Endeavorance. You can find everything that I do at endeavorance.camp. Diana, Hi. who are you? I am Diana Faye, better known as Diana the Rose on pretty much every platform, especially TikTok and Twitch. This is the Atlas Loom. Thank you so much for listening. Our paths will cross again soon, but in the meantime, keep on weaving your worlds. Your worlds.